In the 1990s, a movie, A League of Their Own, talked about the Women's Professional Baseball League of the 1940s, and it featured a team known as the Rockford Peaches. Anybody seen the movie? Gina Davis played the star of that team, maybe the best player in the league. At one point in the movie, she is terribly discouraged, and she's just ready to quit. Her husband's away at war. She hasn't heard from him, ready to throw in the towel, and she has this scene with the manager, who's played by Tom Hanks. And she says, it's just so hard. And Tom Hanks says, well, of course baseball's hard. If it wasn't, everybody would do it. And then he said this, hard is what makes it great. That could also be the motto for life, don't you think? Hard is actually what makes life great. I think of another uh, famous baseball player by the name of Charlie Brown. He's on the mound, winding up, quoting scripture. Thou shalt not fear the terror by night, nor the pestilence that walketh in darkness. The next scene, the ball's coming back at him, and he's hit square on the noggin, and he's flipped over. And the final screen, he's on the ground flat, stars spinning around his head, and he says, but those line drives will kill you. <laughs> I had a friend who was going through a particularly hard season, and I remember asking him how he's doing, and he said, I'm fine, I've just adopted a new motto for life. I said, what's that? He said, duck. Sometimes don't you feel that's life? You just get past one line drive and there's another one coming at you. And sometimes it's not fair. There's two or three batters. <laughs> life is hard. There is pain. We have an aversion to pain. We spend our whole lives trying to avoid pain. Our, our medicine cabinets are filled with painkillers. We think, well, shouldn't it be God's goal for us that we live a pain-free existence? Wouldn't a loving God want it that our lives would be without pain? And it's that very notion, if that is your idea of faith, that will keep you from even taking the first step in these precious verses in the first chapter of 1 Peter. We've turned Christianity into just another success strategy a way to win friends, influence people, and acquire wealth. That's an illusion. That's not a path that Christ ever promised. Certainly not the path to which he called us when he said, if you're going to follow me, it's going to involve taking up a cross. Jesus called us to a journey where he said we will have hardships. His promise was take heart. I've overcome the world, but in the world, you're going to have trouble. Think about it. Hard is what makes life great. As we come to the first letter that Peter writes to a, a group of Christians in Asia Minor, an area now known as Turkey, who are under persecution, fearing for their lives, some already put to death. Peter is writing from Rome, where as he writes, their brothers and sisters in the faith are being wrapped in oil skin lit and burnt to death as part of Nero's garden parties. They are being crucified. They are being blamed for all the evil of the Roman Empire. Peter himself would soon die at the hands of those same executioners. And what does he say as he begins this teaching? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Even without using the words joy, which are soon to come, we hear it, we feel it, we experience it from Peter. 
And as he writes to these people that arguably are experiencing pain beyond what you and I will ever face in our life, he wants to engage them first and foremost in that joy. And that's because who you are at the beginning of a crisis determines how you are in the crisis. Come into a crisis with a pie in the sky. My life is about avoiding pain. That's what God wants for me. You come into crisis, guaranteed, you will reject that God. Come into a crisis, understanding, as he says just the verse before, that grace and peace are ours in abundance. And we can, in all circumstance, praise the God of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Come understanding that God always is engaged in our lives and uses all things for good. Enter crisis, and you'll see God. Come apart from that. Come with expectations of how God ought to act to deliver you. When he doesn't do that, you'll hold God on trial. Why would God do this? Why would a loving God let anyone suffer? Come into it understanding that hardships are a part of life, that God uses them for good, and joy can be found in it. And you won't put God on trial. You'll run to him. You'll look to see his handprints, even in the hardest of circumstances. Peter brings these people to that point of a solid anchor of joy, grace, and blessing in who Jesus is, who he is at all times and in all circumstances. 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to read verses 3 through 12. In Greek, what we're about to read is one complete sentence, cohesive in its thought, and flow. So let's bear that in mind as we read this, beginning at verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even the angels long to look into these things. Interesting. Peter just goes right to an attitude of joy. Last week when we introduced this, we said if, if you're hoping that somehow as we work through this, you'll find those answers that often come to our thinking, 
when we face hard times. Why? Why would I go through this? You know, how do I get out of it? If you're hoping to find those kind of answers, you're going to be disappointed because Peter in no way offers that. In fact, the Scripture doesn't offer that. What it promises is a perspective on life that is hard and how God can use that life to accomplish glorious things. And so because of that, Peter speaks of this inexpressible and glorious joy. We're calling it a bulletproof joy, joy that no hardship can take away. In fact, a joy that our hardships somehow, when they're in God's hands, can contribute to. And so as we look through this passage, I want to take you through six reasons why we should never lose hope. Now, I want to give credit to Chuck Swindoll because I found his breaking down of this passage just so right that rather than reinvent, I thought, I'm going to take you through uh, these six things that he draws out from the passage. The first reason that we should never lose hope is that we have a living hope. He has given us a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I find it interesting how Peter comes to this phrase that it's not just enough to say that we have hope. He's got to give it something. It's not just a Disney hope. If you wish upon a star, it makes no difference who you are. It's not just wishful thinking. I hope I win the lottery. I hope my wife or my husband deals with this problem so I can be happier. I hope my kids come to visit. I hope my kids leave. (laughs) Wishful thinking is what we think of as hope. I I think Peter thought this has to be more than that. So he coins the phrase, a living hope. It's alive. You see, for, for the Christian, hope is a certainty, an expectation of something to come that we can count on. That's what the Bible means by hope. We don't hope we get to heaven. That's the people that still think they're going to get there if their works that are good outweigh the works that are bad, that somehow they earn their way to heaven. We can only hope. When we talk about our hope that is in Christ, God has done the work through his son Jesus. Our hope is living and certain, part of who we are. The Disney hope says, I wish, I wish for this. The living hope says, no matter how hard this life is, no matter what difficult circumstances you're going through, this is not the end of the story. This is just the rough road on the way to the right direction. We have a living hope. The second thing he talks about is that we have a permanent inheritance, and that's in verse 4. He has called us into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. There are three ways that Peter's saying our precious things on earth fade away. They do not last. And he uses three descriptions. The first one is that our hope is imperishable, as opposed to those things that can perish. Store up as much grain as you can in the silo, You can't hold it forever. Eventually, it perishes. Even canned goods only have a certain life expectancy. 
organic things eventually fail. The second thing he talks about is something that cannot be defiled. Defiled is an act on something that causes it harm and therefore diminishes its worth. Years ago, I had the opportunity to work at this Bible conference called Days of Decision, a season that marked my life. Well, today, Days of Decision is, is no longer around. Just about a month ago, a group of the alumni staff visited the old grounds, posted pictures of the old facility. The pool has been overgrown. The baseball field is a forest. The old inn is down. All that's left is the metal structure of the old nightclub and the stage. If you look at the pictures, there is graffiti on every open space. It's been defiled by nature. It's been defiled by men. The third thing he talks about is fading away. Ink fades, paint fades, color fades. You see, everything that we can do on earth eventually loses its value. Peter says, that's not your inheritance. Your inheritance is safely tucked away in a place called heaven where nothing can touch it. That's what Jesus said when he said, we're to store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't corrupt, where the thief can't break in and steal. Peter says, we have that inheritance. It's a guaranteed thing, and it's reserved for you. That inheritance has your name on it, and nothing you're going through in this life can ever take away that inheritance. Can't touch it. Pretty bulletproof joy right there. The third thing he talks about is a divine protection. Verse 5, you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the day of salvation. There is nothing that you're going through that he will not hold you through so that your eternal destination is secure. This is God's power holding us. I don't know about you, but sometimes hardships cause me to question everything. There's a passage that Paul says, even when we're faithless, God's faithful. We're human. We struggle in the midst of hardship. What Peter's saying here is that God doesn't. He's faithful to us, and it's his power that protects our eternal destiny. We are protected and preserved eternally by the power of God. The fourth thing he talks about is a growing faith. Now, this is the very first time in the letter that Peter says, here's something that actually comes out of your trials. Let's read the passage. Let's start in verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. This is the first time Peter says, these have come in order. Now, Perhaps in the weeks ahead, we'll take some time and talk about God's role in hardship. There are certainly seasons when God says, I'm going to bring a hardship on you. In the Old Testament, we see that constantly. But God doesn't always claim responsibility for hardship. What he does is claim that he'll take control and use it for his glory and for our good. So no matter how situations come, the question should not be why or who. The question should be, what is God going to do in it? How is he going to turn it into something that produces good in my life? 
And one of the things that we learn is that there is no growth in our faith if it's not stretched and challenged. Last time I preached on 1 Peter was just after the the 9-11 tragedy that uh, killed so many of our citizens and impacted all of our lives in in so many ways, changed life as we know it. You know, it's interesting now, 10 years have yielded a lot of living for our family and for me, a lot of joy, but an awful lot of hardship too. I no longer have the recordings of that series. I'd be curious to go back and listen to that naive, youthful, (laughs) somewhat ignorant man in his early 40s trying to talk to people about hardship in life when he knew so little of it himself. If I were to describe the primary lesson I've learned in these 10 years of difficulties, hard, life-wrenching challenges, is that there's absolutely no growth without those. Our beliefs are largely theories until they're challenged by hardship. And that's what Peter's getting at here. When he says, these have come so that your faith might be proven, he's illustrating gold. You know, gold cannot by the average eye be seen as gold in its rough stage. It just looks like another shiny rock with a bunch of impurities in it and all sorts of things. It's the refining process that proves the gold. That's what he's saying. This is not about proving the existence of faith to God. God doesn't give us trials so that he'd look at us and say, okay, now I know you've got faith. As the fire purifies the gold, trials purge out all those other things that come along with our belief systems. And what's left is what we can see and confirm as faith. It it confirms it to us. I have never felt my faith so strong than in the hardest of times. I can say that now with absolute conviction. Not those times when I, when I faced the hardship and threw my hands up and said, God, what are you doing wrong? But those times when I faced the hardship and the first question I asked, and I, I would tell you story after story where I intentionally asked this question, God, how are you going to show up in this? Lord, let me see your hand in this. Not, Lord, deliver me from it. Lord, explain yourself to me. Lord, show up. And in those times, I have experienced my most profound faith, a certainty of who God is in my life and a surety that he loves me and cares for me. That's the dynamic that Peter's speaking of here. And and the most beautiful thing is, is that that faith is even more precious than the purest gold that's refined by fire. Why is it so precious? Because gold can't buy anything that doesn't die with us. There is nothing gold can purchase that matters for eternity. Faith alone is the richness that God gives us that carries us through into eternity. Product of suffering. Malcolm Muggridge, in his biography entitled Homemade, says this, Contrary to what might be expected, I look back on experiences that at the time seemed especially desolating and painful, with particular satisfaction. Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I have learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that was truly enhanced and enlightened my experience, has been through affliction and not through happiness. Hard is what makes it great. 
The fifth thing that Peter points to by which we can have a bulletproof joy, never lose hope, is an unseen Savior. Verse 8, even though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Christ, though unseen, is present in the midst of our circumstances. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Christ said, of course you'll have hardship. Is a servant any better than their master? If they hated me, life, the world, it'll hate you. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Better yet, he said, I am with you always to the very end of this age with all of its hardships, with all of its highs, with all of its lows. He is the fourth man in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he's the constant presence to you and I as we go through the fires that purge and purify our faith. An unseen Savior. And then sixth, he talks about a guaranteed delivery. Verse 9, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, which is, in the end, the salvation of your souls. It's easiest to keep our eyes on eternity when life takes away all of our hope for present living. But when the trouble dissipates and we find ourselves focusing more on the affairs of this life, the goal of our eternal salvation still remains our ultimate priority and promise. It's just that it's less important to us. It shouldn't be, but it becomes less important. Hardship has a way of reminding us that Boy, thank God it doesn't end here. There is a salvation of our souls. We will live on. Peter is saying, no matter how hard life is right now, be encouraged. You're going to get there. You will endure. You will arrive safely. Six things that Peter says are causes for you to never lose hope. It really boils down to a choice for us, either resentment or rejoicing. Hardship is that type of a dividing line. We're forced not to stay mediocre, to take a path. That's what hardship does to us. One path puts God on trial and pushes him away. The other path embraces God for comfort and looks for the good that he wants to do in it. One path makes us bitter the other path makes us better. One path from God, one path to God. Those are really the choices. There are a few things in this passage that Peter makes as observations about trials themselves, and I think they're worth noting. Verse 6 again, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. There are just three things that are quick observations about those trials. First, they are, in fact, distressing, even though you're going through trials. In other words, the joy is in spite of trials, not necessarily because of them. We're not sadists. We don't relish the pain. Distress is a natural part of our trial. You have had to suffer. Second, trials are varied, all kinds of trials. The word there, uh, I don't remember the exact um, 
the exact Greek word, I'm sorry, it's not coming to me, but it means varied colors. In fact, it's the Greek word from which we get the word polka dotted. <laughs> and it means that the trials that we receive come in various shades and colors. They're as varied as you and I are. That's why we should never look at somebody and compare the hardship they're going through and how they're responding to it to how we might respond to it. Because the very thing that knocks you off your feet might mean nothing to me. Conversely, I might be knocked flat over something that you've been dealing with for years and go, what's the big deal? And the third thing is that reminder that trials are necessary. I think I've already made the case for that pretty well so that your faith may be proved. In spite of all these things, we have, and I love this phrase, an inexpressible and glorious joy. What does that mean? What does the word inexpressible mean? I like to think it means that I can't really explain it to you. <laughs> you know, there's a joy that people ought to look at a Christian who's going through hardship and say, I don't get it. How can they be experiencing joy right now? And then they go to you and say, how can you be joyful? And you go, I don't know. It's inexpressible. I, I can't put words to it, but it's there. What does glorious mean? The word doxa for glory means weight or worth. And so we could take glorious to mean that it is a joy of great worth to us. We can't explain it, but boy, it is precious. But of course, glorious also is about giving glory to God. Whatever I do, I do it all for the glory, the weight and greatness of God. And so this joy is divine and reflects and honors the divine who is at work in me. Inexpressible and glorious joy. There's an interesting contrast to that in a parallel uh, passage written by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let's just turn there quickly. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Here's a guy that knew trials of all types. I'm just going to quickly pick up at verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not abandoned. We're struck down, but we are not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the very death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed. Skip down to verse... 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, and what is unseen is eternal. I think Paul and Peter have been dipping from the same Holy Spirit and finding wisdom for how to face hardship by focusing on what is unseen, on the eternal. That is yielding fruit in our life. Outwardly, we may be fading and failing, but inwardly, we are being renewed and strengthened and thriving. Because of that, he calls the very hardships that the whole church was going through during this era as light and momentary. Some of us have been knocked out for our whole lives on hardships that these people would gladly trade us for. And yet, Paul calls them light and momentary troubles because compared to the inexpressible and glorious joy 
That's exactly what life's hardships are. I don't know if you've been wondering what this is. One of our harder seasons as a family put us in a place of wondering what God had next for us and feeling a little betrayed by friends and a bit uh, on our own trying to deal with things. And while I was uh, trying to find my footing, my daughters went out doing a little shopping. Where did you find this, Ella? Do you remember? Home goods? Okay. So they went to Home Goods and brought back some gifts of encouragement. So they're holding it just like this as they come in. I'm thinking it's another fishing platter because that's what they always brought me. <laughs> Dad, go fishing. You always feel good when you go fishing, Dad. This is what they brought home to me. It says, Grow. God's voice to me through my daughters. Don't get bitter, get better. Seek God in all circumstances. There's no growth without brokenness. There's no growth without hardship. And it yields an inexpressible and glorious joy. See, that, that's the beauty of our life in Christ. Even the trials are God's blessings in disguise.